Um, we are in James chapter 2. Um, if you're a guest, again, we just worked through the scriptures. You happen to have joined us when we were in uh, the letter to James, and we are right now in chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 7, James 2, 1 through 7. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read the passage? My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. Well, this is a particularly difficult passage because it almost sounds like uh, James is down on people that have wealth, but we'll see it later in the sermon that that's not the case. In the first chapter of James' letter, he tells us to joyfully treat, tri greet tri trials of many kinds. Joyfully greet trials of many kinds. And you say, huh? I'm supposed to do what? Well, it's realizing that God is sovereign and that everything he brings into your life, he brings into your life for your good. Ultimately, it will end up for your good if you love him and you're called according to his purpose. He proceeded to list some of the temptations that test us in chapter one, doubting, partiality, being too quick to speak, failing to listen, anger, failing to act on what we hear, ignoring the needy, and being polluted by the world. In chapter 2 now, he's going to drill down on one of those issues, partiality. In the first chapter, he addressed the issue by saying, the poor should boast in their exaltation, but the rich in their humiliation. He was illustrating how the church is so different from the world. A worldly mindset sees the poor as worthless and the rich as being of great importance. The kingdom mindset is the opposite of that. God gives the poor a sense of worth in Christ and humbles the rich. Each social class is being blessed with their needs being met. It doesn't mean one's better than the other, but each has a different need. The redeemed will see this as a blessing. The world, on the other hand, thinks that's pretty strange. These people are pretty peculiar, and they would agree with the Apostle Paul, who says we're a peculiar people. Verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
So we begin chapter two with James' um, fourth use now of the term, my brothers. And we're gonna see two more uses of it later on in this chapter. He emphasizes that we are together, we are a family, rich, poor, uh, whatever culture you happen to be from, we all struggle, we all have room to grow, amen? Amen? Yeah. Oh, I thought maybe you'd all attained. <laughs> He's not wagging his finger at them from afar as if he has a different nature and can't understand what they're tempted with. By acknowledging them as family, he's saying that they are actually doing God's will because his half-brother, Jesus, said that those who do the will of God are my father, mother, sister, and brother. Yet there are areas in our lives that we still need to conform into the likeness of Jesus. A lot of areas. And when we see a fault in others in the family of God, we need to remember that they are a part of the family. We're in this with them. They are our beloved brothers or sisters. And we want to encourage them with gentleness to let Christ reign in our behavior. And I mean that reign in both ways. Reign in that behavior and sovereignly reign over our behavior. Jesus set the example by eating with every class in society, from Simon the Pharisee to Zacchaeus the tax collector. He humbled Simon and he encouraged Zacchaeus. James' exhortation is, is dealing with partiality. He states emphatically that those who hold to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, should have no partiality. That expression, Lord of glory, is only used in one other place by the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 2.8. So James is using a unique title here for Jesus, the Lord of glory, and it's probably meant to show us something. Glory is a word that we rarely try to comprehend the meaning of. So I think we need to define it if we're going to get to the point that James is trying to get at. Vine's definition of the Greek translated as glory tells us that it's used of the nature and acts of God in his self-manifestation. What he essentially is and does as exhibited in whatever way he reveals himself in these respects and particularly in the person of Christ in whom essentially his glory has ever shone forth and ever will do. His everlasting power and divinity are spoken of as his glory. His attributes and power as revealed through creation. In Romans 3.23, the word denotes the manifested perfection of his character, explicitly his righteousness of which all men fall short. I heard a, a more distinct, uh, succinct definition. I think it's from Arthur Pink. He said, the glory of God is the outshining of his perfection. It's, it's what we see, and we see that most clearly in the life of Christ. The Lord of the visible manifestation of the heart of God. We could kind of say it that way if we expanded the definition. 
the Lord of the visible, the Lord who makes visible the invisible attributes of God. By using this title, we can surmise that James is telling us that partiality is contrary to the nature and attributes of our Lord. If we're to be changed into his image, we need to act in accordance with his heart, his attributes, his nature. Partiality is contrary to God's nature that we see exhibited in Jesus' life. Partiality then would then mean we're not holding to the faith of our Lord. God loves mankind, every single person of every culture, ethnicity, and status in life. He doesn't save us because we're smart or from a certain race or had a personality of one kind or another. He saved us because he made us in his image and he longs for that image to be restored so that he might bring together the bride of Christ forever with him. If we look at some people that God has chosen and used mightily for his kingdom, we can see that they come from every walk of life. Paul was a religious zealot who persecuted Christians. The judge Jephthah in the Old Testament was the son of a prostitute. Mark, who wrote the gospel with his name, abandoned the missionary team on their journey. Rahab was a harlot. Samson had issues with lust. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Peter denied knowing his Lord and compromised with the Judaizers. You know, one of our, uh, our good longtime members told me that Billy Graham was told that if someone told him in his youth that if he never learned to talk, he'd never make an evangelist. Moody was told in his youth that he better look for some other occupation than preaching because he just wasn't up to it. God chooses us because he's gracious and he wants to show us that it's his life in us that does the good works. Amen. As we were saying in Sunday school, we have the natural, he add him and we have the supernatural. It's his work in us. And we all need correction of some kind. We should all welcome it. You can never be too bad for God, only too good. In other words, if you're like a Pharisee who thinks you have it all together, you won't hear that you're a sinner in need of a savior that needs to grant you grace and forgiveness. Verse two and three, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. James is addressing the church's tendency to show partiality towards certain types of people who attend. His, his example is our preference for the wealthy, the finely dressed attendee. James accuses them of telling the poor to go stand and sit somewhere else or at his feet so the rich man can use his seat. And you might think that kind of thing never happens at your church. But let me ask you, if you are as eager to greet the young man with the dreadlocks and tattoos 
who does not smell so nice as the nicely dressed couple that is all smiles. Be honest. Do you see them equally as potential family members? Would you be just as eager to invite one to your house as the other? I have witnessed this over the years, and it's just because we are fallen human beings. For a while, we had a man named Bear who was an alcoholic. He lived in the woods. He had quite an odor. I think my wife was the only one to greet him with a hug. I'll shorten the story and just say that God gave us the privilege of seeing him clean and sober before he graduated from this earth. Jesus died for Bear, and people like Bear. Jesus died for the rich guest, too. Do you think God's influenced by a person's status in life? The Lord of glory sees our brokenness and our inability to even seek him. He sees our arrogant pride, our ridiculous self-sufficiency that we keep trusting in, even though we fail time and time again. He sees our resentment at what he has allowed, and he still reaches out to us in love with those nail-scarred hands. We're all absolute paupers in God's eyes. At the same time, we're all precious in his sight. And if we're clothed in Christ, he sees us as his own sons and daughters. So if we put one family member above another for something so trivial as clothing, are we acting in a way that pleases God? Or do we need a good lesson in our own spiritual poverty? Because really what we're saying when we show partiality is, I'm better than him. Verse 4, Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Instead of viewing one another as equals, saved by faith through grace, undeserving of God's mercy, but blessed beyond comprehension, we make the church a place of class distinction that would rival a Hindu culture. If some people were honest, they would say, we have elites and I'll talk with them, I'll have them over for dinner, and then there are the regulars, they're okay, we need volunteers. And finally, there are the untouchables. Do they have to come to our church? Or else we might take pride in the fact that we help the dregs of society, but just don't want to be expected to get involved in their lives. In other words, we're making distinctions among ourselves and becoming judges with evil thoughts. Some commentators prefer the translation, are you not inconsistent within yourselves or in your hearts? In other words, the Lord of glory is the standard sometimes, and at other times we revert to the standards of the world. We're like that double-minded man or that two-souled man in chapter one. Did we forget that we're sinners saved by grace? And if it were not for the grace of God, we would be in their shoes. 
Jesus told a story that surely upset some in his audience, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man dies and he ends up in hell. And Lazarus, who while he was on the earth lay, was laying at the rich man's gate because he was unable to move. He was hoping just for a few crumbs from the rich man's table and dogs licked his sore. He ends up in Abraham's bosom. That was a shock to Jews because Jews believed your prosperity was directly related to your godliness and your affliction was directly related to your sinful life. But Jesus flipped the tables and he tended to do that quite often to help us realize that the way we judge others because of the outward appearance is not the correct judgment, that we need to see a person's heart. Verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? James starts this verse with what he exhorted us to do in the first chapter in verse 19, be quick to hear. He starts it with the word listen. He follows with that warm entreaty of family concern, my beloved brothers. He asks them to consider who makes up their congregations. And at the time, many of the new converts were in poverty or were slaves. It's true that the poor can be just as greedy as the wealthy, but poverty can also turn our eyes away from the world to the more valuable things, the eternal things of the spirit. He points out the richness of their faith, which is true riches. When I visit the third world where poverty is a part of everyday life, I see rich faith. I remember being asked to preach in the slums in Mumbai. And the overseer asked me to preach on Philippians 1.29, for it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe on him, but also suffer for his sake. I kind of choked when I heard that was the message this rich white boy was to deliver to these people in the slums. But after delivering the message, a local pastor approached me with his wife and his baby, and he told me he was going to ask for a couple sheets of metal to cover his cardboard shack. But he realized now that living like the others in the slum was a gift from God. I felt like a pygmy before a spiritual giant. That's rich in faith. I know he was an heir of the kingdom promised to those who love Jesus. That man loved Jesus and he loved the lost souls in that slum. Being a lover of God and rich in faith and an heir of the kingdom can be anyone regardless of what they look like from the disabled Down syndrome child to the CEO of a major corporation. That's the wonderful thing about our God, isn't it? He loves us all, and the good news of what he's done for us is simple enough for anyone to understand. He invites us all to come as we are and be transformed 
from the inside out. He looks on our heart. And when it's changed, our behavior changed as well. James is asking the question, did you just tell that person, that poor man to sit on the floor and someone rich to sit in an honored seat? Because of what? Because of his clothes? Because of that gold ring? Or is it the hope of a big donation? Do you realize how inconsistent that is with the Lord of glory? One of the greatest problems in the Church of America today, at least from my perspective, is choosing elders based on their status in society rather than their qualifications from Scripture. It's a preference for appearance. And that results in a corporate mentality. The words watered down, love is limited, the spirit departs, and eventually the lampstand is removed. You end up with a religious club. They may help the poor, but not for the love of God, but to boast in their good works. Verse 6, you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? In preferring the wealthy over the poor, we dishonor the poor. We act as if a person's wealth is what gives them value as a person. So James then asks a series of questions about how they're treated by the rich in the culture of that day. They oppressed the poor. They dragged them into court. They had influences, influence over the judge. And this was especially true in the Greek culture of the time. The rich could influence the judge uh, and to get favor from the rich. And they mutually exchanged favors. In our present culture, we're seeing judges rule by their ideology instead of the law. And that's often a bias against Christians. Thank God for Christian lawyers who volunteer to fill in and defend those whose rights are violated. The wealthy were more likely to be the ones to blaspheme the name of Jesus in that culture, who himself was a friend of the poor and lived in poverty. The wealthy want gods who make you rich and powerful, not a God who humbles you and shows his greatness in weakness or who expects you to serve others. So James asked these questions to have them see that the poor of that day and most cultures are the ones who are open to the good news of Jesus. Their partiality of the rich didn't make any sense. Cozying up to the rich was in most cases trying to get something for oneself. It was not unselfish love, it was self-love. In our culture, God has called many rich people into the kingdom because most of us would be considered rich by the standards of most of the world. But God looks on the heart. He is impartial but he expects us to be good stewards over the wealth that he's given us and to bless those who through no fault of their own have genuine needs, especially those who are laboring for the gospel where it has not yet been reached. James, having grown up with Jesus' poor family, 
Sounds like he has it in for the rich here in this passage. But if you look at the quotes and cross-references in this message, you'll find that most of them are from Luke's gospel. Luke also expresses a concern for the poor. I think James and Luke had a similar heart and no doubt their paths would have crossed. They share God's heart for the needy and so should we all. Later on though, James quotes Abraham and Job in this letter, both of whom were very rich. Now quoting, uh, I'm not sure where this quote came from, but quote now, if it's only the poor who are privileged to receive the divine choice, then the rich brother of chapter one, verse 10 is a considerable embarrassment. So also are Abraham and Job, whom James quotes with approval and who were exceedingly wealthy men. Furthermore, of course, the evidence of the rest of the Bible is by no means as unqualified as James' words, taken at face value seem. The wealthy Joseph of Arimathea, the proconsul Sergius Paulus, Levi the tax collector, and his colleague Zacchaeus are sufficient to prove that the Lord has no animus against the rich as such. Here at Wayside Bible Chapel, we help the poor on a weekly basis from our food pantry, which by the way is fully stocked now. Thank you so much everyone who gave. And our Wednesday night meals, they're open to the poor. We give monthly to two different missions that help the homeless and those who are in need. We give a good portion of offerings to overseas missions and to local ministries to the poor. We have four missionaries from this church and a ministry for the autistic children that sprang out of this little church. But that doesn't mean that God will not ask us personally to get involved in the life of someone in need. We all have our gifts and our callings, but what James is warning us about is be sure that our love for our fellow man is not hindered by outer appearances or prejudices. We can be just as prejudiced toward the rich as we can toward the poor. So James tells us to listen. The God of glory shows no partiality and neither should we. Each person that we meet was made in God's image and has the potential to become a son or daughter of God, a part of our family. Jesus died to save them. So how should we then treat them regardless of their outer appearance or status in life? And the only way we can do that is to let the love of Christ for others fill our hearts. It has to be his love through us. If we want to be Christ-like, we need his indwelling presence. For those of you who have accepted Jesus as Lord, I ask you if you've been letting his love flow through you. He will not force you, but he will empower you if you're willing. Are you willing? If our answer is yes, watch for the opportunity because he will bring it your way. Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song? And then I'll give the benediction.